Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens. In this podcast, I ask my guests to reveal the seemingly insignificant things from their life that personally they treasure so much that they would like to see them preserved in a time capsule. They pick four things they love, but one thing that is important, but which they wish they could erase from their life. We then talk about each thing before sealing it in a time capsule and burying it in the ground. My guest this week is the actor Kevin Bishop, who started his career as a boy in Grange Hill, before being cast as Jim Hawkins in the film Muppet Treasure Island. He went on to appear in numerous TV shows, including his own series, The Kevin Bishop Show. He was in Pie in the Sky, Love Soup, My Family... Peep Show, New Tricks, Benidorm, Murder in Successville, Nigel Farage Gets His Life Back, in which he played the titular character, 
Detectorists, The Tracy Ullman Show, Plebs, and a whole series of Porridge, where he played Nigel Norman Fletcher. He played the title role in the TV film Dick Whittington and has been in over 20 other films, such as Horrible Histories, the movie, Rotten Romans, A Few Less Men and A Few Best Men, where he gives the funniest best man speech in any film, in my opinion, David Brent, Life on the Road, Moonwalkers and Keith Lemon, the film. This episode with Kevin was recorded some time ago at his home during that envious time in the distant past when two people could be in the same room without masks and without fear of killing each other. I look forward to making more recordings this way again soon. Roll on the vaccine. Actually, don't roll on it. Put it in my arm. Thanks. But in the meantime, I hope this reminds you of joys past and happiness is to come. I slightly suspect that actually you're a liar. I think that you're one of three triplets <laughs> and that you spend all your time sharing out the things that you do in your life because I've never known anybody who's as busy as you. Uh, my wife would, would disagree with that. She sounds very lazy. But, um, yeah, no, I, uh, I'm always trying to keep busy um, doing other stuff, hobbies. You have to have hobbies, have don't hobbies. you, when you're, especially when you're, when you're an actor, you know, and... Uh, yeah, make acting your hobby. I think that's the uh, that's yeah. the the secret, isn't it? And you don't feel any pressure when you sort of say, "Well, I'm I'm not actually doing the acting, but that's just a hobby." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, actually, an actor did say to me when I was really young. He said, "Kevin, when you can make acting your hobby, you've cracked it." And I remember thinking, "Whatever." And, uh, <laughs> and now I'm I'm nearly forty. I think. Oh, God, I wish it was my hobby yeah. <laughs> and not my living. My advice to young people who are thinking of going into acting is, well, become an amateur. Yeah. Oh. Uh, aim high. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, you know, there is something about that. I mean, I um, my my daughter took part in a kind of in a local thing that they, were, they wanted to get school kids for the sound of music, and she was one of the Von Trapp kids. And I saw her in her performance... And I saw all the other actors on stage and I thought, they are enjoying this so much. Yeah. And they're doing it because they love it. And I thought, God, there's not many actors that have that moment of serenity on stage. You know, there's something about it being your work as well and, and your, you know, how you get your money and stuff that does remove a bit of the art and the, and the, the beauty of doing it. Yeah, in fact, the joy of theatre often only occurs to you when you're in the wings, I think. I agree. I've had that moment a few times. I'll do a lot of work with gorillas and, and I remember we were in going, when I go and sort of tour with them or I'll see them in concert and just being at the backstage mm. and seeing the sea of thousands and thousands of people and then you see the, the, the performer in front of you and then the sea of people in front of them and it, it, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, you just think, wow, it's the closest that you'll ever get to actually being a rock star yourself. Yeah. You know, I remember we, we did this thing at the O2 with the Muppets. The Muppets did a, uh, they, they said, hey, Kevin, we want you to come and perform with the Muppets at the O2. You're like family to us and uh, we'd love to get you back. <laughs> and I'm thinking, Jesus, I'm going to the O2, the O2, the O2, right, okay. So we go to the O2 and it was mental. It was completely mental. I mean, just thousands and thousands and thousands of people there. It's huge. Ridiculous, yeah. I mean, there's something 
scarier about performing to a theatre that only holds 600 people mm. than going somewhere like the O2, the size of the O2, obviously, but there's something kind of, I don't know, it removes you from the fear of it because it's, it's just like walking out into space, <laughs> you know, like there's no, you don't really, it's just weird. Yeah. I, I'm scared of smaller crowds than I am of big, big crowds. I don't know. My experience has always been the other way around. Whenever I've done those great big concerts, I think, how can they possibly see me? You know, I, I, I end up jumping about a lot and pulling enormous faces yeah. in a desperate attempt to come across the footlights, as it were. Yeah, hamming it up, love. Yeah, hamming that's it up. me. Well, that was my, always my problem with, with theatre, as I think, as an actor going to see theatre, I struggle sometimes in, in going to see plays, and I, I, which is a nightmare because I have to go to the theatre all the time to see friends in plays. But, <laughs> but I always find when I, people act differently when they're on the stage to when they do when they're sort of in life. And suddenly they start standing differently and, and shouting and, you know, and, and the whole posture of their body changes completely. And I, I always find it looks really contrived. So I I struggle. And every now and again, you go and see a brilliant play where they still manage to project really well and whatever, and but they, you, you you can't see them doing their acting, as yes. it were. You know, yeah. but they, they're few and far between, aren't they? They are. They really <laughs> are. <laughs> those shows. Particularly the beginning of a play, because mm. it seems so alien what people are doing. And it's because, really, they're making their voice heard right to the back of the theatre or something. You had open-air theatre, yeah. and it starts in the light. And mm. strangely enough, your voice doesn't carry as well in the light. Yeah, Once it gets true. dark, there's less ambient noise. Oh. And so you can talk much more quietly in the dark than you can in the light. Oh, that's very true, because it's whenever you see Shakespeare in the park or something like that, you know, and they're performing, you always think, I always think, I can't hear a word they're saying. No. And it's because they there's just so much ambient noise around, and yeah, yeah. there's a but there's a, a sixty one bus, and a, so of course, and you're yeah. all those little sounds and you're birds pitching and, over, yeah. And then suddenly it goes dark, and they're sitting on their own on the stage, almost whispering. Yeah, that's very very true. Yeah, but I it is that. strange that beginning where you, people walk on stage and really bellow. Yeah. Ah yes, I'll have a cup of tea. Yeah, I hate that. What? I hate that so much. <laughs> For me, I I hear that and I immediately, I, it, something must have, I've, I've got some trauma definitely from my childhood in a theatre where it, it went on too long or something because as soon as they come out and they do that, I just think, get me out of here. I've got to get out. I've got to get out. And, and what my body does is it, it, it actually, my rebellion against it is to fall asleep. It's like narcolepsy. <laughs> and it's really terrible because I don't fall asleep ever unless, unless I'm in bed. But but for some reason, if there's something I don't want to be like theatre or or I don't know a maths class or if I'm in church somewhere where I really mustn't go to sleep, but somewhere I'm required to pay attention, <laughs> then I will go to sleep. I will go to sleep. I never fall asleep in the cinema. I can sit through the dullest films, no problem. Never never walk out. But theatre. If I get stuck in a bad play, that's it. I, I can't keep my head up. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm out for the count. I hate it when actors go, what are you up to, love? Are you busy, darling? And I go, yeah, I'm just doing this thing. And, they go, and they go, I say, what are you doing? And they say, we're doing a play at the Globe. <laughs> you you must, must come. You must come. I say, brilliant. How long is it? And that's my first yeah. question. They go, it's four hours each half. There's an interval, but then you go, i like, listen, don't promote that. Yeah, you can stand all the way yeah, through it. I don't want to go to that. 
<laughs> I'm not going to that. Like, don't, stop promoting it. If it was me, I'd be ashamed to say I'm in a, I'm in a four-hour play. I'd say, don't come. It's four hours. It's fucking horrendous. <laughs> God, just stay away. Stay away. Save yourself. Please don't come. Don't pretend you're going to come because you're not going to come. It's fine. It's four hours. Nobody should write four hours play. I think it should be a law. It should be a law. It should be a law. A ninety-minute theatre, and that's it. I'm all for that. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we've got this time capsule, mm. and what I'm going to ask you to do is to find five things from your life that you'd like to put in it. Right. Okay. So I'd been going out with my wife just for a couple of weeks. We'd been together nineteen years, and uh, and then I went away and made a film in in Barcelona, mm. and I said to her, "You're going to have to." leave your job and come and live with me in my hotel in um, Barcelona because I miss you. I'm like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm lovesick. And so she did. She quit her job and she came and lived with me in my hotel. But the director was this brilliant director, really lovely man called Ventura Pons. He was Catalan director. And Ventura Pons, hey, what's this man? He said to me, Kevin. <laughs> Kevin. They can't say, they can't say Kevin. They say Kevin. They can't pronounce the V. <laughs> so he said to me, Kevin, I want you to come to Caracas. It's a place of my family for many years I have this place. You can come. Um, you can stay with me for a few days. We have a house very close to Salvador Dali. He used to live in this place. And he was very good friend of mine for 30, 30 years, a very, very good friend of my family. And everybody was a friend of his for 30 years. <laughs> and, and whenever he said he knew somebody, he always go, hey, was a very, very good friend of mine for 30 years. So we go to, um, we go to Caracas in this car with uh, Ventura and his partner. And um, we drive along this country road and we get to Caracas. And there's this incredible... I mean, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it, it, it's a beautiful place. No, I haven't. Been. It really is lovely. And Salvador Dali lived there. And um, I remember there was this, this mist was rolling off of the cliffs, like a really sort of prehistoric feel to it. It was, it was mental. And then we went out in this boat to this beautiful little island and we had fidua, which is like paella, but the noodles. Mm. And we had the fidua there with the ayo sauce. And it was the first time I'd ever had it. I was 20 years old. It was the first time I'd ever eaten that food. And I, and I was with my wife, Casta, and we were both really young and in love. And I was making this film. The film was called The Food of Love with Geraldine McEwen and uh, Juliette Stevenson, Paul Reese and Anna Corduna. And it was just an incredible weekend. And I remember we stayed in this hotel. And in the hotel, it was so hot, there was no air conditioning. So we took the mattress off the bed and slept in the on the balcony wow. outside on the hotel, and we had we had wine and 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 cheese and stuff out on the balcony, and then slept on the balcony. And I always remember it to this day as just like one of the happiest moments ever of my young life. Mm. You know, I'd left home; it was the first time I'd really been away from home, and um, like working long term, and you know, like just this freedom and Barcelona. And Spain, and the, I just fell in love with the place. I mm. completely fell in love with it. Uh, yeah, and that, that was that was really just the start of an in, of an incredible sort of experience. So when you first when you fell in love with your wife at this time, because if I think back to my falling in love with my wife, I was rather strange. I think, or she thought I was strange because I would always talk about us 
way in the future. I would talk about yeah. us when we were old. So when we're old, yeah. and she would say, well, we might not be together. But I had no, no pressure. Da- I had no doubt about it. <laughs> yeah, I was completely confident in the yeah. fact that that this this would happen. These things would come about. It's interesting that stuff, isn't it? Because I I always wonder, like, as soon as I met Castor, I was just like, well, that's it. Like that's just it. I'm always going to be with you. Maybe that's because of my childhood. My parents are still together, and they were sort of childhood sweethearts. And 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 I just always I thought, well, that's just the way it is, isn't it? Yeah. This is acceptance. I've been to Spain several times and done some interesting things, and it's always those sort of off-the-wall moments mm. that are the most memorable, aren't they? Well, those are those moments, I think, in your life. There's moments that I look back on that I remember being in the moment and thinking, I'm never going to forget this. Yeah. And it's funny because you really don't. You know, like, I remember the first time I did a play, and I was it was Chichester, and... I'd left home to go to do this play and it was the cast were incredible. It was it was Steve Spears, Tom Georgeson, Deborah Gillette, Andrew Lancel, Alec Newman, Russell Tovey, who mm. I shared a flat with. Wow. And we were kids. We were like 18, 19. Yeah. Uh, it was Nicholas Le Prevot. And Nick was uh, playing the piano singing songs and poetry over there. And then I walked over and he said, what are you fucking doing over here, you cockney? You've scared all the girls off. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved, I absolutely loved Nick. I mean, he was just such fun. And I found some photographs recently of me with Russ and Nick and Steve and everyone else. And, and we're so young. Mm. They're so young. Nick is so young. And I thought he was really old because yeah. I was only 19. And I think, Jesus, he's only a couple of years older than me. No. You know, because it's 20-something years ago. Yeah. Um, and and they were just a, an amazing time. But I had this um, I had this flat. Russell and I, we rented this flat from this woman who was very posh. And, you know, I said, I wanted all the money up front. You know, I want the money up front. And I remember, I remember we basically, there was more money than to get the flat than we were earning. And every night, we'd go to the Bell Pub, which is opposite Chichester Festival Theatre, and we'd, we'd, you know, we'd have, we'd, we'd have quite a few drinks. And we'd be sort of staggering home, and then you'd get a call, and, hey, hello, darling, it's Nick. Um, look, I said, this would be a little bit inebriated. I'm... I'm really not really able to drive a Volvo home back to Tunbridge. So, would you and Russell mind if I slept on the floor in the thing? And that, this was every night. And we had, it was like a sort of menagerie of these reprobate actors. Brilliant. Steve Spears. Steve Spears. Oh, come on, I'm coming over. I'm going to steer yours. Hope you don't mind. Um, I've had a few. I've had a few. Don't worry. I've got this lump. <coughs> i got a lump. <laughs> he's been doing that for 20 years, and I've been worried about him for 20 years, and he's, he's still going strong. <laughs> he's still smoking, you know, with Marlboro Lights. And, um, yeah, and it was, it was brilliant. I mean, just a fantastic time where what I really noticed about the actors was that there was no... We were all the same age. You know, I mean, mentally, mm. we were completely the same age. It, it was irrelevant. It's a fabulous thing, isn't it? That that's the thing that it's very difficult to explain to other people who aren't actors. Yeah. That the hierarchy of acting is absolutely based on the part. Yeah. I mean, someone said to me once, an actor said to me once, I said, "What is it you love about doing what we do?" 
He said, well, it delays the onset of adulthood. <laughs> he said, because when you're an actor, you just you just don't ever really have to grow up, do you? Really? It's like a sort of, you know, you just you just carry on doing what you're doing and, and getting by and, and enjoying things and dressing up, essentially, yeah. and mucking about, which is, what, you know, which is really what it is. And, and I totally agree. And I love the company of actors. I find that actors are just... We realise there's a finite amount of time to the job that we're on. Mm. And so it's like, we're on this thing for six weeks and then it's bloody done. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Then we're we back to unemployment, love. Yeah. You know, and, and there is... And, we'll never, and we'll, we'll never, we won't work with each other possibly ever again or at least for 10, 15 years. Yeah. So, and then you jump straight back in again as yeah. if you've not been apart. Yeah. And that is... That is the best thing. And if and I always find that... Well, I remember in the early days as a child actor and you'd be going for a read-through. And this is... I'm talking about, you know, the mid-90s or whatever. And people would go, should we go to the pub? Go to the pub? Pub lunch? Pub lunch? Pub lunch? And all these actors of all ages all go into the pub. Yeah. And we, we used to go and we'd have, to, we'd have a drink and we'd have a lunch. And that's how we did it. Mm. And, and, we were, and that's how we bonded. Because we realised we, it was like a little bit like going to war. Like... We had to bond really quickly. Yes. Because we're going to be on stage in a couple of weeks and, and we need to get all this stuff done. You know, we need to break all these things that you work with someone in an office and you wouldn't get to know, you know, John from accounts for 10 years. No. And then suddenly you'd see him at the office party and strike up a conversation. This is instant with actors. Yes. You know, because we because it has to be. There's no time for, no. For, for getting to know each other slowly. It's like, you who tell, are you? you what are you about? You tell other actors things almost immediately, don't you? Your, yeah. your most extraordinary secrets. Yeah. You tell them at the first coffee break. Yeah, it's essential that they know that about you. That's yeah. what I think. You know, I think it's essential that we just cut to the chase, you know, and, and I love that about actors. You know, yeah. I, I really love that about actors. And I think that comedians are much more guarded. Comedians get themselves into a headspace where they think, I'm, the f- I'm so funny. Um, who's going to make me laugh? Yeah. And then someone does make them laugh, and they don't like it. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. I'll you, you sit in a room with a bunch of comedians. There are lots of people saying very funny things, and everybody else scoring them. And I, I, but I, I'm, you know, I'd be guilty of that myself. I, I, I think when you when you get involved with comedy and you start creating comedy, then you do start to dissect everything i mean i was watching an episode of um arrested development the other night and i was studying the camera angles and i just thought what am i doing mm. like and i was going oh that says so all handheld that <laughs> what am i what's happened to me i can't <laughs> even watch bloody i love comedy like, what am i doing you know like i'm every performance i'm thinking they've cross shot that they've, mm. they've, that's how they did that they've cross shot that and that's how they <laughs> and 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 that that sort of I remember when I was a kid and I was I was in Grange Hill and I loved Grange Hill. I watched every episode. I was a big fan of Grange Hill. And I turned up to Boreham Wood where we used to film it and they said, do you want to see the playground? And I was like, yeah. And they walked me out into the playground and I thought, going out into the Grange Hill playground. Yeah. And then I they showed me this car park where there were cars parked in the playground and... That's the wall where we shoot the so-and-so scene. And it's just a plastic wall and a set. And I remember the bittersweet sort of day of like, I'm on Grange Hill. And also the realisation that uh, it's all, none of it's real. Yeah. One of the things actually I mentioned in, in, I was going to mention today was that, you know, was working with the Muppets as a, as a child. 
And I always had this thing where I thought, because I worked with Tim Curry, and people say, what was it like to work with Tim Curry? And Tim Curry bought me a CD Walkman at the end of the job. I mean, in the minutes, this is how old it is. So it was, he bought me a CD Walkman at the time. That was you know, fantastic. That was a great present. I mean, it was you know, CD Walkman. Was, it was wow. You know, CDs on the go. You know, this is incredible. And he said, he, I specifically remember him walking me down this. The, we were in Shepperton Studios, and he's walking me along, across the lot and giving me this present on the lot. That's a penultimate day. He went, you know, I just want to say, I'm sorry. For, for you know, by being a bit standoffish, I have been quite standoffish throughout filming. Um, because I just feel like it, you know, wouldn't really help the character that he was friends with Jim Hawkins, and and, and he had really been standoffish, but at the time I thought oh, he hates me, <laughs> but but I now I'm an adult. And I work on set. Now, I was a really overbearing child. Like, I had lots, no. lots of, believe it or not, Mike, <laughs> I was very, very, <laughs> I had lots of energy. And, uh, you know, people would say, are you hyperactive? And my mum used to sort of get very upset. But I was, I was completely hyperactive. And I was bouncing off the walls. And also, I was very irreverent and, 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 and didn't really pay much respect to anybody because I just thought that it was just a, a great laugh that we were, that we were filming. And then... Um, I look back on those times and I think, yeah, it, it, I, I sometimes when I work on set and the kids turn up and they are, they're, they're little shits. <laughs> and I think, oh, God, he's coming over again, that little kid. Oh, God, he's a horrible child. And, it, and you know, it, it, it's, it's funny how you sort of, you know, you, you change. So I forgive Tim. I do forgive Tim for being incredibly standoffish, but I was a very overbearing child. And... Um, we were up in the crow's nest in Muppet Treasure Island, up on the ship. This and, and this, they got this this false pirate ship in a huge studio on this huge jig thing, mm. and and it and it mimicked the motion of a boat at sea. And they very very early CGI at the back, and then they put shots of the Caribbean behind it. We didn't go to the Caribbean once; we shot the whole thing in Shepperton. Anyway, Tim and I. And a whole day in a crow's nest at the top of this ship with <laughs> basket. And um, it was just really awkward. And there were just, just hours of silence <laughs> in this crow's nest. I'm 14. And I'm and I'm really cheeky. And Tim Curry is this brilliant, you know, well respected, you know, actor up in this crow's nest. Yeah. And I just did a moment of awkwardness, I said. I mean, be honest, Tim, I said. Rocky Horror Picture Show. Those fishnets. I said, you're never going to live those down, are you? <laughs> and he just took a drag on his cigarette. And he looked at me and he went, not as long as wankers like you keep bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> it, was so, it was so inappropriate to say it to a 14-year-old, but we both had a real laugh. And then he said, you are, really are a sublime wanker, Kevin. <laughs> and then it became our our little um, private joke, yeah. sublime. And if someone came over, he'd say, he's quite sublime, isn't he? Meaning, <laughs> he's a wanker. <laughs> so, I mean, that was an incredible experience. I mean, it, it, was, it was one of the best experiences of my whole life. I mean, working with the Muppets, age 14. Yeah. 
just amazing. And they were, they were just lovely people. They were like a family. And when you work with the Muppets, you never really lose contact with them, it's, which is which is quite incredible because of all the jobs that I've done over the years, and you just move on, you can't even remember whether you work with them again or, or, or when you work with them or not, you know. With the Muppets, there's always something. And I've I've had lunch with them in Los Angeles, dinners with them in Los Angeles and New York, and where we've all just hooked up. And That's brilliant. Yeah, even still, and it, it is incredible. And when they asked me to do the O2, I was just just so flattered that they and, and they they made a Muppet of me I have a Muppet of me they made one of me one of Tim Curry and one of Michael Caine wow because Michael Caine was yes. in Muppet Christmas Carol Christmas Carol which many people say is the best version of A Christmas Carol it's fantastic mm. I saw it in the cinema it was the first it was the first one before Treasure Island came it was the second one um, Jim Henson had died a few years before and Brian had made Muppet Christmas Carol. Mm. And I went to see it in the cinema and I remember thinking, this is the best Christmas film I've ever seen. And a couple of years later, I was on set for Muppet Treasure Island. My word. Yeah. You must have felt blessed. It was it was insane. I mean, it was, and also I'd been fired from Grange Hill for being just the naughtiest child in, in the world. Yeah. They just said, you got to go. You can't, this is a working environment. This is not, you know, a juvenile detention centre. You just got to go. And they they fired me. And I remember telling my dad, he said, I've got a call, you've been fired from Great Show. And he said, only my son could be expelled from a fictional school. <laughs> <laughs> well, all the kids were going, oh, man, you're in so much trouble now, man, because, like, you've been kicked out of Great Show, man. That's it now. That is it now. Oh, my days. Oh, man, you must be so embarrassed, man. You must be gutted, man. You must be gutted you're kicked out of Great Show. And I was like... At the time, my parents were mortified. I was really, I was really worried about it. But do you know what? Like, w- within a few months, I was the lead in a Muppet film, and I wouldn't have been if I hadn't have been expelled from Grange Hill. So it worked in my favour. Well, that's uh, it's lovely. Now, I'm going to take the three things that you've mentioned to me so far. I'm going to take these. Going to put these are going to go into the time capsule. All right. Okay. I think you should definitely put. You and your wife, or uh, yep. I suppose then girlfriend, yes. lying on a balcony, drinking wine, eating peas. <laughs> I have to say, I'm really jealous. <laughs> and also, I think that you at Chichester with those actors, and then actually feeling for the first time, in a way, like an adult, and thinking, yeah. here I am, I'm away from home, mm. and I'm with these people, and we're all together, and it's fantastically unitarian. It's, yeah. There's no hierarchy here. We're all just having a brilliant time together and being honest and open with each other. Yeah, absolutely. And it was one of those moments where I thought, this is what it feels like to be a proper working theatre actor. Mm. And I love it. And I want to do it again. That, that was, that was, and this is, that was me done. Yeah. I knew at that moment at 19, I just thought, there's, there's, there's nothing else I can do but this. And somehow I have to stay employed in this this field you're very happy to work in the theater not to go to it yeah i'll be in a four-hour play (laughs) i'll be in one but i'm not watching one (laughs) (laughs) because it's you know that's the other thing people don't see when they watch a play they just think we're all just standing there in the wings we're not we're downstairs mucking about in the dressing room you know playing pranks on each other whilst you're you know deep in brecht Because we're we're terrible, aren't we? I mean, we do we do a play 
after about three or four weeks, we're all getting bored, aren't we? We're like, oh, God, we've got, got to do this for another three months, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible, isn't it? It's terrible. I mean, Maybe it's, it's like... the dream of the job. Yeah. And the moment you get it, you start saying, oh, this goes on forever. forever. God, yeah. But it's a great, the joke, great, it's the great actor's joke, isn't it? The actor who hasn't worked for years and his wife's getting very worried about him. She says, any, any auditions? He said, no, nothing. Nothing. Well, it's at this rate, I might have to give up. And then one day he gets this audition. She says, he said, I've got an audition. She goes, brilliant, brilliant. You've got an audition. He goes in, goes up for the audition. She comes up, how did it go? He goes, I don't know. Finds out he's got the part. She says, well done, well done. That's brilliant. He says, I know, I know. She says, when you film, he goes, I'll go away Monday. She says, oh, fantastic. Cornwall, brilliant. Gets back in his hotel room after the first day, phones his wife and she says, how did it go? He says, Oh, that was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Director was lovely. Loved what I did. Loved everything I did. Thought it was brilliant. She says, oh, I'm so pleased for you. You haven't worked for all that time. That's brilliant. He says, yeah, but you know what the best thing is, though? She goes, what? He goes, I've got tomorrow off. (laughs) (laughs) That's just... It's so true. In a bloody nutshell, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So we've got your wife on the balcony. Yes. I've got you at Chichester. Yes. And also I've got you up in the crow's nest. Yes. On the Muppet movie. On the Muppet movie with, with Tim Curry. Lesson. Okay, we're going to take a short break here for, well, for some adverts. That's how we pay for this podcast. We'll be back in a moment. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back. Right, let's find out what the fourth thing is that Kevin Bishop would like to put into his time capsule. Another moment that I remember very fondly in my mind was the birth of my first daughter. And I think I have some kind of photographic memory because when I remember events, I remember what people were wearing. I remember I had a a mustard T-shirt on that had said pie and mash on it. (laughs) And when my wife's waters, no, her waters hadn't broken, actually, that she said, they've started the uh, the contractions have started. It was about four o'clock in the morning. And I looked at her and I said, right, okay, what do we do then? She went, I don't know. <laughs> and she said, I can feel them. The contractions are happening. And if I'd have known the baby wasn't going to be born for another 40 hours or whatever from that point, I would have told her to lie down, get, get some yeah. more kit because yeah. it just went on forever. Yeah. But we're, we lived in Brighton in the North Lane area. And then I remember we got up, phoned the hospital. They said, just relax, come in a bit later on. But I remember going to the hospital in Brighton and it's, it's in a high rise. It's really up high. And you can see the, 
the pier and everything uh, out the window. And we got in there and my wife had pre-packed the, her special baby bag because everything was, you know, locked and loaded and ready to go. And um, I remember she had a musical playlist. She had on her iPod. It was an iPod. And uh, we go into the hospital and the contractions. And she's saying, rub my back. So I have a rubber back. And then, and then like another day went past. I'm like, oh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm absolutely exhausted. And, uh, and I was falling asleep. And, the, and she was saying, wake up! <laughs> I'm in pain! And I was like, yeah, I said, well, you know, I haven't got agonising pain. Keep, keep me awake, come on, I'm very insensitive of you. And, um, and then she said, get my playlist, get my playlist. And I just picked up the phone and just pressed play. And come on, Eileen came on. It wasn't on, it wasn't on her baby playlist. It was just, this was just random music. I just put, and like, come on, Eileen. And, uh, which That's I thought was, a baby. well, I thought it was a really hilarious choice. And, um, and, and my wife was furious. And I remember the gas and air that, that my wife was on the hospital and, and I was just taking this gas and air and I was just on this gas and air. And by the end of it, I was saying to the nurse, I was saying, this gas and air is fantastic. Um, where can you get this stuff? She said, well, it's not actually available. I was saying, listen, if I wanted to get some of this, I'd give you, I'd give pay you. I mean, this is, this is unbelievable. She said, could you please give the gas and air back to the, your wife now, Kevin? And I remember looking out of the window of Brighton Hospital over the pier and completely off my face on gas and air. And, um, and then, my, then my beautiful baby was born. Arabella and she came out and she was it was insane like her eyes were wide open she wasn't crying and she was looking around the room like some kind of sort of tiny gremlin or something like that but just the biggest eyes and and they were and they were blue and they were open and it was just it was very really mad experience and I remember being really shocked that it was a girl because everybody had told us, "Oh yes, the heartbeat sounds like a train," and yes, it's going. Yeah, it's going to be a yeah, going to be a boy. Definitely a boy. Definitely a boy. So we just assumed it was going to be a boy because that's what everyone had told us. And I saw it was this girl, and I remember being really chuffed mm. that it was a girl. And I remember, it, it was it had been like forty-eight hours. We not, not neither of us had been to sleep. My wife looked so exhausted by the end of it, and I remember just looking at my wife and feeling so proud of her. I just thinking, how has she done this? Like mm. it was so hard. The birth mm. was so hard. And I remember she looked at me at one point and she said, I don't think I can do this. And I remember thinking, she's got a point. I don't think she can. They're going to have to pop it back in and we have to go away and let it cook for a bit longer. And yeah. Come back with a bit in a couple of days. We can't do this now, but that's not how it works. It's, it's coming. Like, and you've got to, you've got to do it. Got to keep going. And I just, such respect for her for getting through that. I, and I, I knew, I, I thought at that moment, I, thought, I, I, I couldn't do this. You really feel for the generation where it would have been ridiculous for a man to have been in the labour ward with his wife. But that experience of watching your wife go through that extraordinary pain. Yeah. And that incredible physical demand upon her body. Yeah. Is something you never forget, isn't it? I totally agree. I mean... You you, you you get closer to them, don't you? You you because you, you, I remember thinking at the time, I'm thinking, God, this is so unfair that she has to do this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what I thought. I thought it's so unfair that she's got to go through this. And uh, and and then part of me was thinking, 
if blokes had to do this, they, uh, they're, they're, you know, what they what the women had to go through, just absolutely astonishing, really. And I remember just laying on my bed in my flat and looking at the ceiling and just going, I've got a baby, yeah. I've got a baby. And it was a moment that I'll never forget. I'll never forget that moment in that room, lying on that bed with my pie and mash T-shirt on <laughs> and being a dad, actually being a dad. And, 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 and yeah, she is like my, my daughter's um, 11 this year. And she is really, we're very, very close. She was a complete daddy's girl. And um, Audrey was born two years later and a completely different birth, much quicker and a really so chubby baby. Hmm. Um, and it was, again, it was beautiful as well. It was absolutely beautiful um, experience. One that I'm, I'm so glad I was there for. As an older man, I'm able to tell you, uh, well, warn you, there will be a day where both your daughters will tell you they hate you. Oh, I've already had that. All right. I've already had that. I mean, it, it, it's, it's um, yeah, I've I, I, I had that a couple of times from Arabella. And it's just starting to dawn on me now that I've got a wife and two daughters. <laughs> and I've got, a, I've got a, when we were buying our dog, the girl said, there's a female available. They've got, they've got a girl one. I said, no, absolutely not. There needs to be some testosterone. I need someone, just someone. And, um, and I got my way and I, and I got back my dog and, uh, but I, I'm completely outnumbered here, mm. you know? And so, yeah, there's, uh, the bants as we, as we call it has already started because my kids really, really take the piss out of me. Like <laughs> I had long hair recently, obviously a couple of days ago. And my, I, I read my youngest story and she looked at me and she said, What's going on with your hair? You look like a crap beetle. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, a brilliant description. What? Oh, I was just absolutely devastated. And that's basically what they do. And it's going to get worse. And they're yeah. only 10 and 8. So I always think about, like, people say, oh, I'll tell you what, someone get my daughters. I'll say, you look after my daughter, mate. You ever mess my daughter about? I'll be, honestly, good luck to whoever... <laughs> gets these ones because they are going to give them a run for their money you know they're terrifying <laughs> brilliant well I think any father that moment of realising yes I'm a parent mm. I am a father yeah it's an extraordinary moment isn't it I mean I always uh, you, you forget how hard it is don't you And but like the, those early stages I think between the ages of like you know newborn and four mm. you are really in the eye of the storm aren't you and we had our kids quite close together and I remember when we, we had the first baby, we were thinking, we're really good at this. This is, this is it. We got this. This is easy. Should we try another one? We're, we're made for this. Yeah. Second one came along and it was just like, we didn't know whether we were coming or going. I mean, it was utter carnage. I mean, my wife handled it amazingly, but I, God, it, it was just, yeah. And we were very lucky because a lot of my work was, was abroad in the States and, and when the baby's a little like that, you can take them anywhere. But I always worry now. I think, God, if I got that job now, mm. what would I do? It would be a nightmare. Yes, it becomes impossible, doesn't it? It does, because they get their own life and their own friends. And they don't want to go to Los Angeles. Or they don't want to go to live in bloody, you know, wherever for a, you know, 
for for a few months and 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 Give I understand that. Give up their job and go live in Barcelona. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> they're not going to do that. But it's just talking to you now. I suddenly realise, you know, how far away those moments are, and actually they don't feel that far away, but they are. They're yeah. they're a long time ago. Yeah, and it is like you know Barcelona and things like that. I mean, it's oh my god, like I'm forty this year, and so so it's I was halfway through my life. Mm. You know, it's it's just mad to um to think of that yeah yeah it flies by well there's also that thing of knowing when you know what do you make the choices are i mean i think when you when you do have a family you know you you make massive sacrifices as an actor because your objectives completely change and you know i remember being a young actor and i remember thinking the jobs i wanted to do were were not about finance almost they were more about me just being front and center and being the star of this thing. you know that's what that was what I wanted to be I want to be a serious actor and go off and do this thing and but I wanted this family and then when you have a family you realize actually you can't you can't devote the time to being that person that other people have done but also you, you think I want to do that job because I really want to get that play swing for the kids yeah and they'll love that you know, every you don't care anymore about the things you used to care about. You know, and and I I remember like every job that I choose to do now, it becomes about oh that would be good if that if I do that job because that would be great for us to go there and do that, and the kids need that, yes. and the wife needs that, and they that they'll love that if I get that they'll love that. Be, and, and that's that's just you know that's like anyone that's anyone doing any job. Everybody does their job because they want to provide for their family. You know, yes. my wife's very supportive of actually it, 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 what I do. I turn a lot of stuff down and, and I'm sure when the chips are down, she probably sits there thinking what a selfish bastard he was to turn that down. But she never tells me that she never makes me feel like that. That's nice. And that is nice because it, because I do think the partners really suffer. I think mm. they really suffer. We suffer and it is a, you know, an insane business to do keep the momentum going and whatever and this it's inconsistent and we suffer through that but that was our choice but i think the partners i don't think they they never signed up for what they end up with you know and what people see is this kind of gregarious outgoing character uh on stage and in the dressing rooms and in the green rooms and whatever but they don't see this person walking around the house no. for three months <laughs> thinking their career's over. Why didn't I get that part? Yeah, yeah. And and watching television going, I can't, I can't believe they went for him. I can't <laughs> believe it. That, what a boring choice. What a boring choice. You know, right, right, right the way through the whole film. Yeah. The only time my wife really has ever told me off about it was mm. that I went to Australia for four months when our baby was uh, three months old and we just moved to a new house. And every night I would phone her up and just say, oh, I'm having such a miserable time. I really miss you. Really miss you. I want to see you and the baby. Why can't you come? And eventually she said, don't ring me again. Unless you're going to ring me and tell me something cheerful. She says, because it's hard enough, me being here with a baby. You're in Australia having a whale of a time. And all you do is moan about it. Yeah. Well, see, my wife is the opposite. My wife wants to know that I'm having a terrible time. That's what she wants me to tell her. So I, I, I'm very, I'm very careful about the about the information that I impart because I, 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 
uh, I'm always having a wonderful time wherever I am. <laughs> so I have to say, it's fucking miserable here. Very boring. I miss you, darling. It's not the same. Oh, everyone's awful. They're awful. No, there's nobody here under the age of 30. <laughs> and no, everybody's hideously ugly. And, and the food is rotten here. In Because uh, I've actually left my wife when I went off to do... I made two films in Australia... And the first one was in Sydney. The second one was in Perth. Both times, I had the most incredible experience. I, I loved Australia. Mm. I think it's brilliant. And uh, I wish that we left all the convicts here and, and, and taken everybody over there and we'd all just gone to Australia. It was brilliant. Mm. fantastic place. But um, What is the title of that incredibly funny film about the wedding? A Few Best Men. A Few Best Men. If people have not seen A Few Best Men, they must watch it because your best man's speech... <laughs> With your coked up <laughs> is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in a film. It's one of those really lovely sort of gifts that you get every every now and again. They don't come around very often. Stephen Elliott directed it. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, he directed. And Ste- Stephen was like this really, really brash Australian. He's just like, what about fucking... Just fucking say it. Just fucking do it. Fucking whatever. You know, like, he, he wanted it to be ruder, more bored. I mean, he's, he's brilliant fun, Stefan. I mean, I just... I, really, really good fun. I mean, and... Um, Olivia Newton-John. So, Olivia Newton-John, there's a scene where we're taking cocaine before the wedding speech. And she says, and she goes, do you know how I do this, Kiv? And I said, what, Cocaine? She said, yeah, I mean, how do you do it? And I said, come on, you know. You must have seen it in a film or something. She went, I, of course I've seen it in movies, but I don't know how you do it. How do you do it? How do you use this cocaine? And then Chris Marshall and I were, were not looking at each other thinking, who's going to demonstrate how this <laughs> works? And uh, she was just brilliant fun. And I, I remember she's got a lovely sense of humour. Livia, a really lovely sense of humour. And we were in this place called the Lindenfells in the Blue Mountains. And I remember just playing tennis with her at sunset for just two hours, just playing yeah. tennis with Olivia Newton-John. She's an amazing tennis player. And uh, we had the best laugh on that job. We had just had the best time. Um, myself, Chris Marshall and Xavier Samuels and a lad called Tim Drexel. It was brilliant. The, the whole thing was, was, was great fun. But that, that's, you reminded me when you said about Australia. Is I, I remember my wife was heavily pregnant. She was seven months pregnant when I left and I got back and she was ready to drop. Wow. And I remember the whole time, the whole last month I was out there in Australia thinking, if I get that call, I'm, I'm 24 hours away. I've got to go. Yeah, yeah. I've got to go right now. But luckily, you had over 40 hours. Yeah, yeah. well, I would have done in the, the first one. Yeah, oh, I was yeah, lucky. we're going to absolutely put your daughter's birth into the time capsule. Yeah. A beautiful thing. Well, I'm going to ask you now to put something in that you haven't enjoyed. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so I'll, I'll put something in there because I never I never talk about this, but um, it's something that as I've gotten older, I, I you, you reflect on your life and you... Th- you, you, we think we're indestructible, don't we, when we're, when we're kids? Um, and when we're young in general. And I think that lots of stuff happens to us when we're young that we would process completely differently as adults. And we just seem to put them into the back and we've got that exuberance that just says, we'll get through this. 
Uh, no, I'm not going to get. I'm not, I'm not going to let that define me. I'm going to let's move on. And really, they do. They, I think they come. They get you in the end. You know, yeah. they eventually come. And uh, when I was 12 years old, I went to a school called Ravenswood School for Boys in Bromley, same school David Bowie went to, mm. and um, it was uh, last uh, classes of the day. And we'd come into the classroom and the headmaster at the time was Mr. Hassel and he walked into the classroom and he stood up and I thought, that's weird, he's come into the form uh, class to, to, to talk to us. And then he said, I've got some very, very sad news for you. Stephen Granger lost his life last night. And Stephen Granger was my best friend. Oh, my word. And I, he hadn't been at school that day, but I hadn't really questioned it. And he was on, he'd been on crutches because he had a, uh, Severs disease in his feet, which meant it was, like a, it was like a growing thing, and he was on crutches. And what happened was he'd he'd, he'd lost his life. Um, he'd accidentally asphyxiated himself whilst doing his homework. Um, he had a dog, and and he would hook this dog lead onto onto things. And he, anyway, he he had hung himself accidentally, and it was. So traumatic, like I really, really just had the, the horrors of, at a really young age. I mean, I wasn't even 13. Yeah. And um, it was the first time in my life that I was aware of my mortality and that we could die, you know? And I think younger than people should know. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It was, yeah. To become all that aware of... And and so childhood innocence is is a real sort of thing for me. I was like, you know, that it can be just. It, I remember it was snatched away that day completely, and I the world was 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 never quite the same again. You know, at that point, my my best mate. And what was really horrible was we used to have these books called the contact book, and and in the contact book, you had met you could collect merits. There would be awarded merits from the from the um, teachers, and. Merits were hard to get, you know. They weren't. They weren't. They were, you didn't get them easily. Um, and some kids, the some of the swaps had loads of merits, you know, the teachers' pets and whatever. But the, the merits came particularly difficult for me because I was, you know, so naughty. And um, the teacher had said to me a week before, Kevin, will you look after Stephen? He's on crutches. I went, of course he's my best mate. I'll look after him. That's fine. And one lunchtime. I love playing football and my job was to take Stephen around on his crutches and help him get from A to B. And I just forgotten play football mm-hmm. and I played football for lunch and the teacher, I walked back after lunch sweating. I've been playing football in the all, all lunchtime and the t- teacher saw me in the corridor. She marched up to me, Mrs. Hughes, and she took my, she said, give me your contact book. And I gave her the contact book. She opened it out to the merit that she'd awarded me and she scrubbed it out in red pen and then gave it back to me. And when Stephen died a week later, I had that contact book for the rest of the year. And every time I opened the contact book, which was every day, every lesson, every day, I saw the scrub. And it really, uh, yeah, and, it, and, and it's and it's funny, isn't it? You, you put these things to the back of your mind. But just recently, I was thinking, God, that was really hard. And my mum used to sort of take me to the family. They were Italian. And they would wear black all the time and then they would wear veils. The, the women would wear veils 
where they were in mourning. Yeah. And, yeah, it was just really... I just remember it just being a really, really incredibly depressing year. Like, the whole time was just really awful. And I think I had a breakdown. I think I'd actually had a breakdown at that, at that young age. I really think I did, because I'd hear him, like noises in my... Like, I'd hear screaming in the, in the middle of a classroom. And I didn't realise at the time, but... No. I just got through it. But I look back now, and people say to me, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a breakdown. <laughs> that's what happens yeah. Yeah. when you have a breakdown. Well, I think people underestimate how much children are affected by these sort of things. Mm. They feel that actually, but they don't really understand. It's yeah. not like being an adult where you understand the full consequences of things. But, um, but mm. children also are fantastically good at just getting on with it. Yeah. But there's also, if you talk to a lot of people that work in comedy, there's always some kind of, I always find something there. And, it, and it, it's a coping mechanism comedy. I think it's a skill that we develop that to cope with, with for, in my case, I developed comedy to cope with sincerity. You know, I struggle with it. So when people, I'm the worst person to tell that your cat's died <laughs> because I will make a joke out of it. Or I feel like I, or I have to. So, so obviously, if someone comes up and says, oh, my mum's died, I'll sit there and I'll give them a cuddle and I'll be, you know, it's, it's a sombre moment. But, but there's something about sincerity with me that I'm very, very awkward around it. So I think that's where that skill, I was bullied as a kid because I was on, well, I think it was because I was on television, but also I was small and stuff. So I've learned very quickly that comedy got me out of trouble. And not just any kind of comedy, a charm comedy. Mm-hmm. So mine, mine is always about trying to charm someone. My, my old thing always, always been, if you're doing comedy and that person is annoyed, you've lost. It isn't working. You know, so if anyone, someone's in the seat, or whatever occasion, and they're in, they're in the seat, they're in the chair, they should be laughing as well. If they're not, then it isn't comedy, it's bullying. Right. Or, or it isn't working. Yeah. It isn't serving its purpose as a comedic moment. So I always find that the comedy that I really like, the comedy I like to watch, is daft and inclusive as opposed to, you know, spiteful or that kind of, that, that kind of public execution. I, I, I've never really liked those. And I always find the, I find the kind of, you know, when someone does something wrong on Twitter or or, or 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 in social media or something, and people sort of hunt them down, I always find myself sort of feeling for the for the person, no matter trying what to, they've done. Trying to defend them, yeah, trying to defend them because I always find that it's like, and I, I just never enjoyed that spectacle. No, you know, never enjoyed that spectacle. I always feel like you know, it, it's like watching an outnumbered fight. You know, it's not fair. No, absolutely, one hundred percent comedy is to this day and always has been my way of bursting either tension in a room. You know, I will always say the most inappropriate thing, but it's needed. It's necessary at that moment. It's always, I always feel like when you say something really inappropriate, it's really funny. And it's up the stakes are so high that everyone laughs because it's, it's, it's comic relief. It's exactly what it is. It's like, Thank God someone said something. Well, all, all the funny people are thinking that. Yeah. You know, thank God someone said something funny at that moment because it's unbearable. Well, I was, you've been watching about a bad drama. They just look at each other and they go, oh, shit. And that's the end of it, you know. Or if they go to see a bad play or whatever, oh, that was 
I didn't enjoy that. If you go see a bad comedy, people are so offended yes. that you dared to try and make them laugh and it didn't work. How dare you waste my life trying to make me laugh? And I always find it hilarious because I just think it's it's such a thankless task when it goes wrong. They yeah. can't just go, they can't just accept it. And, and, I, and yeah, there's... It, 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 that's my problem with uh, with with like doing comedy in the UK is it's just there just doesn't seem to be the support for it. You know, you've got to it, you've, to be a comic here in the, in the UK. You really got to nail it. You got to get it right, mm. or they'll or they'll pull you to pieces. I think it's I think comedy means so much to us. It's very precious to us yeah. as a nation. I, mean, I remember when I was in France working with. I've done a lot of work with the French over the years. I've got sort of a parallel film career. With, with European cinema that no one even knows about here, thank <laughs> God. And um, yeah, and these these the French when I'm with them, they're laughing at me and you know, giving you know, he's uh, really uh, you are so funny and uh, the things that you say. Uh, but you can see they're almost thinking, why is he making us laugh? Yeah. Why is he trying? Why is he trying to make us laugh? Why is he bothering? Yeah. Why is he bothering? Like they, they don't have a. It's that kind of thing. Like they, they expect the women to be quite sort of demure, and 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 so Castor and I, we always, whenever we go, my wife's a good laugh, and she's she's a good storyteller, and she's a hoot. And my member, my my friend is an actor. He said to me, Kevin, why are you you and your wife? You are so close. You are really uh, close in your life and much in love. What is the secret with that? Why do you love her so much? I went, Well, I, she just really makes me laugh. He went, Hmm. Mm. But that's not sexy, no? <laughs> yeah. He couldn't understand that oh, I like having a laugh with her. You know, we kill time by, uh, you know, mucking around and... Uh, Having funny faces. Yeah, yeah. Play, yeah tuneful, tuneful farts. <laughs> that's, how we, that's how we laugh. As a nation, we're very protective about comedy and, we, and we're very proud of our comedy mm. heritage. And, and when it doesn't work, woe betide you for getting it wrong, you know. Well, you don't very often, that's what I'll say to you. <laughs> so congratulations. Thank Fantastic. you, Mike. Yeah, it's been lovely to talk to you. I'm going to take that little book with that horrible red cross in it. Yeah, I know. We're going to lock it away. That, that's gone. Yes, it's that's gone. gone. Yeah. Don't worry about it again. Yeah, I won't. I won't. It's good. This has been quite yeah. cathartic. <laughs> well, do, I, do I have to pay you? You've got to invoice me for yeah, this. Yeah, the invoice is on me. Don't worry. <laughs> yes, yeah, I really enjoyed it, Mike. Great. Right. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Kevin Bishop. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you usually get your podcasts, or in fact, where you're listening to this episode now. Or you can try Acast, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. And if you've got a few minutes, you could rate us and leave a review. Uh, Be sure to spell check it. (laughs) You'd be amazed how many people misspell simple words like amazing or brilliant or even astounding. (laughs) Somebody even got the word great wrong the other day. They spelled it (laughs) S-H-I-T. Yeah, honestly. Oh, that's homeschooling for you. Anyway, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just search My Time Capsule. You can't miss us. This podcast was produced by John Fenton-Stevens and the music is by Past the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. I hope you can join us again soon. No, really, I mean, honestly, it would be totally shit. Great. Bye. Bye.